You've just entered the Disaster Tough podcast, the place for emergency managers, first responders, and humanitarians who want to get the job done. Stories, lessons, and tips are provided by field experts. I'm your host, John Scardina, owner of Doberman Emergency Management and former federal emergency response official who's responded to some of the most extreme disasters. Disaster Tough is our mantra. It combines experience, training, and analytics in order to be successful at any stage within the disaster life cycle. It means being a professional in emergency and disaster services. Doberman Emergency Management lives by this. If your organization needs to fill a gap, please contact us. We can help. Contact info is in the show notes. We also support other products and organizations that will increase your ability. For example, if you fight wildfires, hurricanes, a pandemic, any disaster in the field, at a hospital or command center, listen up. You're missing out if you do not use L3 Harris for your radio comms. They are secure, portable, mobile, and scalable, which is great news for us in the field. A truly disaster-tough radio system. Check out the XL family of radios by clicking on the show notes or simply go to L3Harris.com. When you think of situational awareness, you need to think of Futurity IT. They are disaster tough because they saw a gap and figured out how to close it by creating the Orion and Athena applications. Situational awareness is all about speed, coordination, and accuracy of information. Futurity IT's Orion app collects and provides preliminary damage assessments and integrates all incident action plan documents with WebEOC. The Athena app allows for planning, contact tracing, and customizable group coordination in every single phase of the disaster lifecycle. The best part? Futurity IT made both applications extremely intuitive. It's so easy to use. Click on the show notes today to schedule a free demo. Welcome back to the show, everybody. It's your host, John Scardina. I am so happy to be here this week. Man, this has been a long time coming. I'm super excited to meet with Jack Krotlikowski. I'm looking at him right now. He's smiling. Okay, good. So Jack is the deputy schmo there in Georgia. And we're going to be talking about what that means. He basically does hazards and mitigation. He's an expert there. He actually comes with a glowing recommendation from our producer, also somebody who helps us out with the show, who's been in Georgia, who's been on the show herself because she's an expert. She used to do hazard mitigation for the state. She left. This guy has been there. He's uh, He's been leading efforts there. So really, really excited to talk with him. Jack, welcome to the show. Thanks, John. Going recommendation. I appreciate it. <laughs> uh, great job with the last name. We're off to a good start. All right. This is good. This is a good start. So what in the world is a schmo, right? Can you explain what that is? Yeah. So um, in FEMA speak, right, um, the, the acronym world that we live in, which someday it, when I rule the world, I'm going to make a an acronym jar where you got to put in a dollar bill every time you use an acronym without <laughs> explaining it, like yeah. the little kid uh, curse jar. But so state hazard mitigation officer, H-S-H-M-O, mm. roll has, rolls off the tongue is a schmo. So I'm the, the deputy state hazard mitigation officer in the state of Georgia. That's awesome. Uh, the last time I was in Georgia for work was, I think, I'm trying to remember the year. I think it was 2000. It would have been January 2018. They had um, they had tornadoes and they you guys had um, it was an ice storm um, down there and uh, in the southern part of the state and so we rolled up I was part of the national team at the time with FEMA and uh, got to know Robbie so uh, I've actually reached out to Robbie one time you got to help me out because uh, that guy then I had like an awesome experience there in fact 
uh, my funny story with Robbie, and this, I'm talking too much in the beginning anyways, but um, I didn't, I mean, I was out there, you know, working. And so Robbie invited me over to his home for the Super Bowl party. And uh, it was the, um, I think it was in 2018. They were, uh, it was your team, the Falcons versus uh, Tom Brady and his boys, the uh, the Patriots. And what was, what was awesome to me, it was awesome for a couple of reasons. One, um, like it was the most stereotypical like block party you could ever imagine in the South. Like there's so much, I never had seen so much food at a barbecue. Like they just had like, they had not just like, they didn't have like wings. Like we do wings. I'm from Ohio, right? Like we do wings like in the oven. They had like, they had like grills filled of wings. They had like 17 <laughs> different kinds of meats. And I'm like, Oh my gosh, there's so much food. And then I walked inside the house and like ever, I mean like everybody brought like the, 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 I would say the the I don't even know how to explain. There's just so much food on every single plate. And I was like, this could feed a 12 nation army. And there was like 20 people there. Every single person was a Falcons fan. Sorry, man, I gotta tell you the story. It's crazy. Every single person was a Falcons fan except for the grandfather, head to toe in gear in uh in Patriots stuff and everyone's making fun of them the entire first half and i'm sorry <laughs> it was so oh man i felt bad for the falcons because like that second half you guys just got rolled but oh man that was one of my most favorite experiences from being deployed because i was able to like fully integrate with the the, the local officials and you know i really felt like they treated like home so i know you guys in georgia party well but you also work really hard and so um let's just talk about that actually because you know, Georgia's climate is changing. Tornadoes are it's typically not tornado alley. It's kind of becoming part of that tornado alley. You're seeing that more often. You saw it. You didn't you just have tornadoes a couple weeks ago in Georgia? Yeah. yeah. So right off the bat, as a person who really appreciates mitigation, how in the world do you it's like the one disaster I don't know how to mitigate like very well. Like we can mitigate earthquakes, we can even mitigate wildfires that kind of stuff, or even hurricanes, like through natural marshes, whatever. How in the world do you mitigate a tornado? Yeah, I mean, that, that's a great question, John, because so when I when I think about sort of risk, right, it's really a function of three elements. We kind of have the hazard. We have the assets, kind of whatever is exposed, be that people or, or buildings typically, and then vulnerability is that third one. So mm. when we kind of have any of those, all three of those put together, that's when we start to have a risk. And I think to your point about tornadoes, that's why it's really, really tricky is because you have no idea what that hazard is going to look like, mm. right? You, you, in terms of magnitudes, we have scales, but in terms of where, when, you just have no idea the way you have a better sense, certainly with some other hazards, right? Flood is straightforward one. Yeah. You know, we have flooding, maybe not in historically mapped floodplains, but you have a general idea where water is going to accumulate tornadoes. That's not the case. So yeah. in my eyes, then, then we need to start from a mitigation standpoint, looking at where we have exposure and where we have vulnerability. So I think, mm -hmm. you know, things like building codes come in there, right? We see that the, the, the amazing frequency with which tornadoes happen to hit, manufactured homes right it, it, and that speaks to the vulnerability both sort of from a building code of built environment standpoint and then when you take it a step further and think about the vulnerability maybe of the populations that are statistically more likely to live in manufactured housing then it makes it even more risky to put it that way right yeah. english is a second language mobility um you well, know the, the personal finances insurance literacy all those come into that vulnerability 
in addition to the built environment aspect. Can I just say that uh, using mobility there was also a pun because they're mobile homes. Okay, so um, yeah, but real talk, like we kind of see like they're magnets, right? Like we say, if you want to know like where the the flood's going to go or where it's going to be impactful, or you're going to like look at the tornado, it's like oh, where are your manufactured homes, and like that socioeconomic like re- reality is is really hard to mitigate because you have a population that is blue collar. And what I like to remind people of is like, and you know this really well, right? Is like when when you're trying to make ends meet, you're just praying that, you know, that you're not hit by that that storm, even though you live in the direct path of where it's gonna go. Because if you leave and it didn't hit, then you don't pay rent. Right. And so it's like this always this gamble, right? Um, I like the fact that you separate it into these three different areas. And that's that's exactly why I called out that Rob story because it's like you guys play you guys play well, but you work really hard too. And so um I was reading um this kind of a random thing, but I was reading um how to actually stop tornadoes. And in two thousand one, the best the best way that they came up with it, this is real by the way, they want to make um satellites that microwave the tornado. Because the updraft of the cold wind, if you can warm it up, you basically that one element kills a tornado. And I was like, you want to microwave the atmosphere? That's your idea. And that's why they haven't done it yet, because that just sounds insane. So um, building codes. Building codes mean like everything. Is that like... I mean, I think of earthquakes and building codes. Um, is that like what you mainly look for when you're when you're talking about a mitigation program? Or like if you're looking at those three elements, if... If you're looking, talking to an emergency manager who has nothing to do with the, you know, they, they're like, oh, I used to be a firefighter for 30 years. Now I think I'm an emergency manager. One of those, right? How would you, how would you talk to them about hazard mitigation? Yeah, that, that's a really great point, John, because I think the, the opportunity we have with hazard mitigation is huge. However, with the sort of the toolbox being so broad, everything from building codes to, to insurance to, generators, you know, backup power for critical facilities. The spectrum is so wide. Well, it means that your inter-community client base is really wide, right? Now you're talking about home builders, yes. the, the planning and zoning uh, development director, of course, the elected officials. You're talking about representative groups for the, you know, the English as a second language for, um, of course, the faith-based community. All those come in. And so I think the emergency manager, we always hear, when you're in the operations center is not the time to be giving out business cards. Right. And I'm yep. surely not the first person to, to share that on this podcast, but I think that's really the case with mitigation as well, because again, who you need to interact with as an emergency manager is so much broader than kind of your, your historic cast of characters that you might expect to see um, within the community itself. Yeah, that's a good point. I mean, uh, we always say about emergency managers, uh, the best emergency manager is the best coordinator, right? Coordinating between stakeholders. Uh, you bring up an excellent point there about, you know, working with officials and trying to change building codes. There's a lot of lobbyists who try to work very hard to not change building codes because it's all based off of the what if. Well, we don't know this is happening. Well, actually, you kind of do because, you know, st- name storms repeat themselves. You look at those paths. I do that for a living. Look at the data and it's like, okay, it, it's going to hit there again. So, how do you work in conjunction or how would you approach working in conjunction with that that um, 
that politician, when you know that they're hearing from the lobbyists as well, like how do you do? You, do you go about getting them on board? Well, I think you know mitigation again, since it's so broad. There's a hundred different you know elevator pitches you could make for a hundred different audiences, right? Yeah. And so I think specifically for for the elected official, I think there's really two really really straightforward arguments. One, you say this is going to make our life easier during response, right? We shouldn't really be doing swift water rescue ever, right? <laughs> From a response standpoint, that means we already did something wrong, right? Somebody didn't believe us when we were marketing turn around, don't drown, as it terms to you know, in terms of low water crossings, or mm-hmm. we had that subdivision that we probably never sort of should have permitted in the first place, but you know, now now it's an issue for us, right? So really, in terms of just keeping the rest of the team safe during the response phase, I think is one that really um, echoes with elected officials. The second one, and it's and it sort of community um, specific, but increasingly, you know, in, in those most at-risk communities, I think you need to talk about municipal finding and say that this is an investment we have to make. This is not an opportunity, certainly for us to respond to, or really we don't want to recover from. That's the whole point of this mitigation is prior to the disaster. Mm. And so it's going to take some investment. And just generally speaking, at least in my experience, those elected officials, what's what's the thing that they love to point to when they're running for elected office? How good of a business person they were, and that's why they should be trusted with our tax dollars. And so yeah. when you can start to have that finance conversation with them and say, hey, this is the return on investment. We see, we highlight things like, you know, six to one at least, you know, return on investment and mitigation dollars. And, and depending on the activity, even better than that. Mm-hmm. And so that's where I think you can drive it with with the elected officials, just sort of that straight life safety in terms of response and then municipal finance. Yeah, you, you bring up two different points there, three different points that I w- kind of want to see if we can highlight. that The idea of the 100 different pitches, 100 different audiences. What's the incentive then? So we had um, George Siegel on here from, um, he's the director of Last House Standing. And he talked about trying to get developers to want to do this. I feel like they're incentivized not to. If your house blows up, I get to rebuild your house, right? And so what would be your pitch or what would be the pitch to try to incentivize you know, developers? Is it just kind of going around them and trying to do code? Or like, how do you, I mean, how do you even broach that topic? Yeah, I, and that's one that maybe if I had had the answer, I'd, I'd be... A touring the country, doing it, doing it for a living, right? And, and my billable hour would be higher than than what I charge right now, right? But I, I think the point is real. You know, I think mm-hmm. there's plenty of products that we pay a premium for, right? As consumers, we we all don't need iPhones, right? We, right? we there's a certain premium that we're willing to pay for that service, and so how true or not that premium is worth it, I, I won't get into that, but. We're as a society, we're willing and able to do that in many cases. Now, yeah. the the able to part is, is different, but the the willing in terms of sort of a resilient premium in in building codes, I, I think we have both sort of the supply issue and the the demand issue, right? I think generally speaking, to your point, demand is not commensurate with risk, right? We don't see demand from buyers that reflects really the risk that that they're at, right? Yeah, and. Uh, though I do always like to highlight again with that hazard exposure vulnerability standpoint, you can't always building code your way out of a bad location. 
right? You, you know, yeah. there's some places where there where we shouldn't be having new development, and I that's another tough one with developers and with certain with elected officials as well. But yeah. you know, I always bring that up to say that you, you know, there's no building code that's going to protect you from a really, really hazardous situation in terms of sort of being in the footprint of apparel. Well, that that highlights that other thought that I was having is because it's like I have had the I've been grateful to have the opportunity to work with um, socially conscious and emergency conscious city planners. But if you go into it, like I was at one point, um, I was going to dive off the deep end and get into city planning and uh, urban planning. If you look at those degrees, there is not a lot of consideration on emergency preparedness. There's a lot of consideration on code. There's a lot of consideration on, you know, aesthetics uh, for what the city and flow for the city. And that's all great. But in terms of like, like, like Doberman, for example, we were, uh, we were asked to develop like, uh, essentially evacuation routes, um, or what should be evacuation routes after, during an after action of a disaster. And my thought process at the time was absolutely, we can do that. Like, that's what, that's what I do. I also was like, why, why aren't we, you know, communicating with the, uh, the city planner here? And uh, that's a big deal. So in your perspective, just maybe it's even a yay or nay or why should mitigation be embedded in city planning? Yeah, absolutely. So a, a lot of my work um, in sort of in the first part of my, my career in state government was, was more focused on flooding as opposed to any other hazard. Right. And, and, and I'll be straightforward here. I'm an engineer by training, Right. Mm-hmm. And so frequently I would have meetings with, with stormwater engineers, city, county engineers. And I would say that to the point you just made, where's the planning and zoning, you know, development director, the planner, because we as engineers, just to the point about we're not going to building code our way out of things. Yeah. We're, you know, that the land, the wise land use is, is really the first step. And then you build a, a code plus compliance structure, right? But if you don't have ingress and egress thought about, you know, th- th- then it's over, right? Yeah, it, game it's over. just a silly conversation to say, well, you know, how many PSI can my concrete hold up to? It, it doesn't really matter at that point, right? <laughs> if, if nobody can get in it out, right? Yeah. Uh, and so it's not even a um, chicken or the egg. It's just one of those absolutely both and, and the emergency manager. And um, like I said, you know, the municipal finance director and, and everybody that mm. there's mitigation is so, broad that that you almost don't want to be an expertise in any subset of mitigation you just want to be the the most humble person in the room to say okay let me reach out to everybody who's smarter than me and then we might make a little bit of progress i like that i like saying it like that um there's a there's a show from like the early 2000s i like it's kind of ridiculous but it's the west wing and um there's a obviously it's a stupid show but uh the president in the show at one point somebody's asking him like how he's able to be so successful and he goes I got everybody who's smarter than me in the same room and able to lead them. And I think that's, I think the great call out that you just made, I mean, talk about a mic drop moment because that is emergency management at its core. It's, it's, it's being smart enough and humble enough, as you noted, to get all the right people in the room. I've played with this idea for a while of like, um, you know, I was on a response team and that's all we did. That's all we focused on was response. Like that was the job. And I appreciate that experience and I'm grateful for that experience. However, in 
when we're not in response, we're like kind of twiddling our thumbs and we're training and we're doing all those things that you should do, keep your skills up. But I've, I've thought for a while that the, in terms of a local level, um, that emergency management and city planning in general, urban planning should be embedded together um, during times of it's, it's not disaster. And that city planner should really put on the mitigation hat in recovery. Like that should be a subset of their job because they should be doing that. And if they're not considering it, we're not talking about doomsday prepping. We're not saying everybody should live under the ground, can't build anywhere here. We're just, we're, and, and we're just talking about like how that should happen. Um, if, if we're going to improve mitigation, right, we have to uh, start addressing how mitigation is going about. Like if you look at a hazard mitigation plan, there's basically two different types. And y- you obviously know more than I do here. Um, or at least I hope as <laughs> as the schmo, but uh, you know, like we again going back to Doberman. It's not a Doberman pitch, but hopefully it doesn't come off like a commercial. But like we get hired to do real mitigation, a real mitigation plan. What I mean by that is like a, a true hazard vulnerability assessment based off of data, getting all the stakeholders in the room, figuring out what your gaps are, and actually addressing to overcome those gaps. What I find from the FEMA like checklist is like, well, I want to be able to get grants. And so like FEMA really just, you know, pushes really hard. And so it maybe it trickulates up to you. Maybe you can share some experiences here, but like, you see like, oh, hey, we showed that you can work with stakeholders. That's really what they want to see. It's like, well, what you really want to see is them mitigating something, right? Or, or wanting to, calling out specific things to mitigate, to be able to get grants in the future, right? Have you seen both of those approaches of like, oh man, this this county or this group is doing really great of like the finding needs versus checking the box so they can get money? Yeah, so definitely both. So I, I can make it a little bit more, you know, Georgia specific in that case. So we have 159 counties, um, which is a lot for a, a state sort of of, of our footprint. Um, so you know, between that and the state plan, so we're turning over 160 plans every five years, right? And so you see. Um, obviously a spectrum. Um, and, and I think the one sort of day number one comment that I always make about hazard mitigation planning is that the plan itself is a deliverable, right? It is not only this hurdle to, to funding to do the things you really want to do. That may be the case. But even if you take it away and say that this is just something I'm doing because I have to do it to access funding, mm-hmm. well, you're still doing it. Right. And so, so one, let, let's just take advantage of, of the, of the fact that, you know, we have, we have the people in the room. So that's yes. just like the very skimming any value at all. Right. Because to me, it, it's all about adding value in the process. And so again, to use the term investment, when I'm investing in maybe my underlying GIS, my, my data, right. If I don't have good yeah. data, I'm not going to have a good plan. Right. Because we're essentially by doing a hazard mitigation plan, we're sort of trying to do, the after action report without the action ever having had to have happened, right? We're trying to say, this is what statistically, you know, based on historic data, maybe if we have some future conditions data, even better, what we think is going to happen. What is again, the intersection of our sort of in, in my eyes, the hazard, the assets and the vulnerability and say, this is where we want to invest. And so when we're investing our time and our resources, then we need to make a really good plan too mostly due to the fact in my eyes is that when we look at it just for funding for hazard mitigation assistance grants through FEMA, we're forgetting about the fact that we could be paying this with whatever funds we wanted to. We could, we could issue a a bond locally and pay for it. We could 
have something creative in, in, in our tax structure, right? You see that a lot in stormwater, right? That based on, on impervious areas, you, you quantify that turns into funding and that's how you're going to do your, your capital improvement program for, for stormwater. And so when you put it on this very, very narrow track of saying, I'm going to do this plan so I can access basically three or four funding sources from FEMA. Well, then, then you miss the whole concept, right? Yeah. Because it's, it's, it's a mitigation plan and that can be in the eye of your beholder. If, if you're most concerned about heat for elderly people, then let's do it. Right. (laughs) Now, if you're if you're in, you know, the middle of Alaska and you're telling me that heat's your biggest worry, maybe I'd I'd question it and say, maybe think about it again, but maybe not. Right. If if that's your data and you're being driven by that data and it's a a justifiable source and and that's what your priorities are, then then by all means. And so I think that's where you can really see the value. But absolutely, we we definitely see the spectrum sort of that you referred to. Of um, yeah. you know certainly that not all hazard mitigation plans are created equal. Yeah, yeah, that's the quote. We try to find a quote on every show of like, oh, like this power statement. If you have bad data, you have a bad plan. I mean, you said it a little differently, so we'll make sure we get what you said. But uh, yeah, I agree 100. I have a GIS background. I was a geospatial intelligence unit lead for you know FEMA, and I was one of two people in the country that I hate saying it like that, but there's there's just a small group. Two people, right? Who could do that job? Who could do response with that that level of understanding? A lot of people don't know what GIS is, so just like a, as a real baseline understanding, uh, GIS is understanding analytics. A lot of the times, that's used through maps. So for a quick understanding, so if your Google Map is seven layers, it's your labels, your colors, your uh, your street layer, your you know your buildings, whatever. That's like going to be like five to seven layers. And what we would do on the national team is it'd be like thirty layers. And we basically figure out risk based off of all these layers. And we're not, instead of saying like, I like what Jason Craddaville said on the show, um, it's not figuring out where the disaster is going to go. It's finding out where they could go and leveling that amount of risk. And they're able to start, you know, developing resources. So great call out there. Um, mitigation has come a long way and has a long way to go. Um, part of the problem is, we build back up to where the building code was. If you have a building code, then you get hit by a disaster. That's what we have to build back to. That just means you're just as vulnerable as you, as you were before the disaster, right? That's a, that's the way my brain works at least. And so like, what would be your advice on moving the needle in, in mitigation right now? Like what has to happen between FEMA because they do have to have those requirements. How do you, how do you basically get people to use data more and so you know they're not just checking that box. Yeah, and, and and to FEMA's credit, I think there's certainly we've seen an investment on on FEMA's end with things like the the National Risk Index, uh, a couple of their online resources that, in some ways, kind of take the 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 GIS out of the GIS, mm-hmm. right? And so that you don't need to be <laughs> like uh, that, a GIS professional. Yeah, it, it's just it gives you it's so interface driven. Yeah. Now at the same time. Um, sort of too much data is almost like no data at all too, because you need to, you need to have that subject matter expertise to come in and say, okay, this is what this says, but what does that really mean for us? I like that. Right. Um, you know, historic tornado tracks that might tell you some things, right. That's where tornadoes have happened. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that certainly doesn't tell us what 
tornadoes in 2075 are going to be like. I don't think, you know, that'd be a fascinating PhD dissertation for whatever students are working on, you know, climate change induced um, effects on tornadoes, right? That'd that'd just be fascinating, right? My argument probably would be from, from, for tornado risk, right? Would be, I would suspect that our 27, our buildings from now till 2075 and, and just the way our demographics go from now till 2075 will be more important probably than how the hazard itself of tornadoes changes between now and 2075. Absolutely. So, so now we're saying, okay, so probably the data that's of more interest to me, probably census tracts, trying to think about the demographics, right? How can I project? Who's a good source for that? Probably university systems. And in, in, in my case, that's probably where I'd be turning first. But then there's other hazards where you can say that future condition hazard is going to change by 2075, right? I think sea level rise uh, would be the most obvious candidate there that if you have anything built out there, you know, that's going to be subject to, to a changing hazard. You know, I think we're seeing that we'd expect to see that with drought, you know, hurricanes, the the science is really interesting there too. Earthquakes, uh, fortunately not something we spend a ton of time on in, in our state, but you know, just passion for the subject means that I'd probably read, more about earthquakes than the than the average American otherwise. But, yeah, yeah. you know, I think we, we do see that, that it, it's really going to be, no matter what risk you want to talk about, what peril, to, to sort of use the insurance terminology, um, the, the demographic part is going to be a huge part of it between now and, and whatever timeline you're looking at as well. Yeah, that's the real problem with the mitigation data is like, I, I'm going to name the wrong source. I think it was the Washington Post who uh, called out that on a mitigation piece, or at least a, a city planning piece, is that they're using 65-year-old floodplain data to figure out where your, your floodplains are. And that's obviously changing. Mitigation is all about stopping a problem tomorrow. It's not stopping the problem today. It's already too late for today because it takes time to build. It takes time to implement building codes. It, you know, uh, Craig Fugate talked about how they made every single person at FEMA an emergency manager. Well, that wasn't written in the job descriptions of all the people who they had already hired. And so now you have a problem of like this idea versus what the reality is. And so that's why I think about emergency management and mitigation is like, you already have the problem. It's already there. Now you got to figure out how you can stop it in 10 years, how you can stop it in 20 years. And things are changing pretty rapidly um, because of that. I mean, having a tornado in January in Georgia is bizarre and it's going to happen more often. Right. I mean, that's just the reality of it. So, um, <laughs> that was more of a power statement than I'm into, but, uh, like seriously though. So great, great points there. Um, <laughs> I'm just trying to think of like, so Georgia then speaking of Georgia specifically, because you're, you're an expert in Georgia and, and really like everyone's, I mean, like you said, like earthquakes, maybe not, but like tornadoes, yes. Flooding. Absolutely. Um, you are on the coast. So you have to deal with hurricanes. Ashley actually gets on me on this for all the time. I, I, because I responded to Harvey and I was in Texas and I know the team got fired in Maria cause they sucked. Um, I always forget Irma and she's like, stop forgetting the name Irma. That was so big for us here. So, what were some of the big disasters that have impacted your career? And um, how would you like to see mitigation moving forward with them, especially if climate change is, a, is an issue? Can you just go down like yeah. the top three hazards and what you want to see in mitigation? 
Yeah. So to talk about a little bit about, you know, my career, I guess. So uh, this was not my sort of my professional career in the moment, but so Hurricane Mitch, 1998, huge Central American hurricane. Um, So when I graduated college in 2012, I worked for, for several years in Central America, still basically doing community development recovery coming out of just the devastation that was, was hurricane Mitch. Whoa. Um, so that's one that, you know, always in, in my mind, right. Um, Katrina. So I was about 15 or 16 when Katrina hit, I was a high school student starting mm. to think that, you know, sort of STEM in general was, was where I thought I wanted to go. Katrina happens. It was one of those moments that like, yep, this is what I want to do with my life. Right. Mm. Um, so definitely those two. And then I think for me, the third one, again, this was right on the cusp of me coming out of college, actually 2009, huge flooding in, in Atlanta. Um, there's pictures if anybody wants to Google it or, or your search engine of choice, not to, uh, to name drop anybody there, but, um, of, of the is a state employee. In Deuce- yeah. Yeah. Uh, no, sorry. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but there's a, there's a six flags under Georgia, or then, and it was or six flags over water under six flags <laughs> over Georgia underwater from 2009 flooding. And it looks like the Loch Ness monster, right? Cause these roller coasters mm. are, are partway underwater and, and, you know, you know, two dozen or so lives lost, lots Jeez. of infrastructure, really, really high kind of recurrence interval. If you're looking at it sort of from a hydrology rainfall perspective, um, and so that was another one that sort of just confirmed like, okay, you know, this is what I'm, you know, going to be excited to get out of bed for yeah. every day. And and then since then, of course, you know, plenty of declared disasters for me as we speak, you know, you were um, sort of jury still out on, on the most recent uh, tornadoes that you mentioned, but we're, we have an open disaster from, uh, for us, it was tropical storm Zeta from, mm. from the fall. Uh, you know, unfortunately in other places, it was still a hurricane, but for us, it, you know, it has the terminology of a, of a tropical storm. And so those have, have been there, but I think those three big ones mm, of, uh, of 98, Katrina, and then uh, 2009 flooding in, in Metro Atlanta. Yeah, that's uh, those are good examples, too. I mean, it's, it's ones that you don't really think about, too. Like if, But once you see it, you're like, oh, this is why. Like, this is the why. And uh, I actually didn't know about that, about Six Flags. So that's, pretty, uh, that's pretty intense. And also, um, like, it's an obvious uh, call-out, too, because of... If, you know, roller coasters are underwater. That tells you how how devastation ha- you know, the devastation level is pretty insane. It's like um, it's Houston. Like Houston puts all their highways in as uh, flood uh, floodways, which, in some credit, like that's kind of smart. But they're also like thirty feet. The roadways are thirty feet lower than the surrounding area, and so it's pretty it's pretty startling when the first time you see it and you see like. The top of the highway is like just underwater, and you're like, man, this the amount of water that can drop on an area is just is just pretty insane. Um, but with climate change, I mean, things are still happening. Things are going to happen. Things are going to change more rapidly, and that's not just the hurricanes. You, you know, we have like we have a problem with Lyme disease. You can see more and more cases of Lyme disease because of a, a, you know invasive species, and and that kind of thing too. So, so there's all these outlier things that are starting to happen, and um, we, ha- we have to address those for sure. Um, which drives up cost to your, to your credit. I mean, um, I shared, I had an episode where we talked about the two dams that broke in Michigan. They knew since 1999 
um, that it would cost, I think it was, they, they estimated $10 million to, to repair one of the dams. USGS, not USGS, US, uh, crap, Army Corps of Engineers. They said, hey, it's going to cost you $10 million. You have a major problem with the dam. The private company didn't was not incentivized, and they didn't do anything about it. And then the dam broke, and it's going to be $100 million to fix. $100 million of damage when it was $10 million to fix. 10x? Yeah, I'll take I'll take the the ten million dollar yeah. option, right? But it's hard to convince people of that. Um, I, I've worked with uh, insurance companies in the past. We use insurance company insurance data is very effective because, you know, their I love I love their version of risk because they know it costs real money. They don't want to pay out, and so they they're going to level their risk a lot better than you know the uh, the highly passionate inexperienced person down the field right so in terms of like of mitigation and insurance you brought that up a few times um there's a problem with insurance if of like we will still insure the the property even if it's in a flood zone right even if it's in a flood zone especially if it's in a flood zone, you have to get a flood insurance right like that's the law but FEMA will also bail you out. If you have insurance and you're in a flood zone, they'll take care of the rest. Do you think that we should incentivize people by not allowing them to get insurance and saying, hey, if, you're, if your house goes goes out, that's on you? Do you think that will get people not to move there? How do you do that without being a huge jerk about it, essentially? I don't know. Well, yeah. I mean, it's, it's really, really hard, John, because I think when we talk about the National Flood Insurance Program, in many ways, it's so much—it's so much more than that, right? Because in some days, it's the National Floodplain Management Program. Um, some days, it, it's really more like the the National Flood Damage Cost Reduction Disaster Management <laughs> Program, right? Because because you're saying, it, you know, it, when I put in this mandatory purchase requirement, saying that you know people with a federally backed mortgage in the special flood hazard area, you know, map floodplain need to carry need to carry insurance, right? It, it, you're sort of you're having some movement of, of premiums coming in, right mm-hmm. there's versus a, a payout which was sort of what had sort of pre-existed to the program right and continues to kind of operate alongside you know i from, from a data perspective right i think we, we're both believers that if it is a more high risk location then premium has to follow risk and and, and that sounds so straightforward and and that's easy to say when you're with an insurance company or a reinsurance company. But when you're kind of that insurer of last resort, which is FEMA through the national flood insurance program for the vast majority of residential coverage to this day, despite, you know, certainly rising uh, private competition or or entrance in the market, at least it's really hard to separate kind of that social program from what an actuarially sound insurance program would be. And to kind of have that duality of, of, um, sort of, again, this, this insurer of last resort and trying to balance that with best practices. And we're starting to see that, right? I'm sure you've, you know, had thoughts and, and discussions about things like the risk rating 2.0, sort of new endeavor in, in how policies are going to be rated. And, and, and I'm a fan. Again, I'm a data person. So how could I argue with unique flood risk for a property, right? That, that's kind of, you know, very easy for me to get on board with and work with. But then you sort of turn it to, okay, what does that mean in my day job? Okay, you know, uh, then we also have this other vulnerability piece that we've always been talking about. And in that case, you know, the, sort of the straight social vulnerability, right? That is very different when it's a, you know, 
I think all of us would say, you know, second home, beachfront, uh, mansion versus, you know, a 19, maybe 60s ranch built before flood insurance rate maps really existed. And it's a second generation family home. And, and that's really their only asset base, right? Those seem very different. And if, and if you're looking at it purely from a risk premium standpoint, you, you probably come up with a different answer than you do when you undoubtedly have the consideration that you do within the National Flood Insurance Program. And so I do, I, I want to give everybody the benefit of the doubt on that one um, because it's really, really tough. But I think that at least when we, when we take steps and, and, and premiums are sort of commensurate with risk, then you start to send price signals. And price signaling is really, really important mm-hmm. in real estate, it, right? That's when, when we go to the store, we do that all the time. You know, we, we look at one product and we, and we look at another and, you know, sometimes the price is so much lower and we say, well, that must be crummy or they would charge more, right? That it's a, it's a knockoff, yep. right? Yep. And, and, and so we price signal all the time. And so that's so hugely important in, in communicating risk because no matter how many, you know, um, webcasts we do, podcasts, we're never going to reach everybody, right? We're kind of how dare you? How dare you? I'm going to reach everyone. There you go. <laughs> John will. John will. Jack, uh, Jack won't. And so when we price signal through every, you know, policy, preferably, you know, in a homeowner's policy with flood, not as an outside peril, that'd be even better, right? Yeah. And, and, and so I think that that's kind of where I look at that. I, um, I was, I went to a community event where this guy was just furious at FEMA for saying he couldn't get a grant. He had to get a loan because he didn't have insurance on his second home. Um, and, uh, you know, he's like, we had all this shingle damage. We had all this shingle damage. And the loan he was getting, by the way, is like a 1% loan. It's like the best loan you'll ever get in your life. So you're welcome. Um, but he was getting, he was like all mad about his shingles being damaged from a category four hurricane and I had just, I literally had just driven over from a community where you didn't know if the disaster impacted the houses or they were just like that. They were on a, um, um, they, they were literally on a f- uh, fence line of a landfill. It is the worst neighborhood I have ever seen. And I've seen a lot of neighborhoods and I grew up in, you know, I, you know, I don't want to get into that, but like I just had, it was the worst neighborhood I've, I've ever seen by far, you know, anybody talks about social issues, anybody talks about whatever, like they have not seen living on a landfill and, um, and, and then like category four hurricanes are just like roofs on ground. And they're just like, this is the worst. And this guy's like so angry about his shingles. And I'm like, you have so many other things to help you out here. You have, you've gotten the best loan you'll ever get in your life. You already have better building codes. You have all the other things you've mitigated, 90% of your risk, right? You've, you've mitigated almost everything. You should be so happy that you only have to deal with shingles. And the, the problem with that and with insurance is that people who need it the most, it's too expensive for them. And, you know, we well, so what we do is we charge everybody else around the country, pretty much everybody else around the country is pay, paying for those through those tax dollars for FEMA to go in and fix the communities that assume a lot of risk right? By, by being there. And then you called out this other thing without really meaning to, I don't think is, is the emotional factor. Uh, ninth ward, hurricane Katrina, 
you responded to Hurricane Katrina. I was there with Georgetown actually studying Hurricane Katrina 10 years after the, after the event. And uh, you're talking to the locals and they're like, yeah, they try to get this to be turned into a park. They try to buy our homes for us. You know, we'll never move. It was a man-made issue. It was a levee issue. This is fine. I'm looking at the levee 30 feet taller than the houses that they rebuilt. And uh, I'm like, man, we didn't, we didn't do a good job on education and messaging, which I think actually is a part of uh, mitigation is just right, uh, right tactics of how to reach the community. So they are incentivized to do it. They, they want to do it. Uh, again, going back to George Siegel, he said it would cost an extra $300 a year uh, to, um, to get flood insurance for most of the homes living on a coast. $300 a year would, would mitigate almost all the risk of, of that. It's just like, man, could you imagine um, the difference is $300 a year on your beachfront property, you know, and the people don't do it. And there has to be a reason for that, right? So when you're thinking of mitigation and you called this out earlier and you're talking about the manufactured homes and you're talking about, or I'm talking about the people who can't afford the insurance, from a, a mitigation officer standpoint, what do you do? What's the next step? Well, yeah, so I, I think there, there's some way sort of programmatically where we can address this, right? Sort of we can say, okay, this, this statistically speaking is, is a small and impoverished community. So we can maybe look at cost share, right? That's, that's a very straightforward way and say, okay, right. you thought you were paying 25 cents on the dollar. Well, what if, what if it's 10 cents? And, I'll, you know, all of a sudden that, that's a more attractive option for that community, right? Um, and, and so that's sort of very straightforward programmatically. But then elsewhere, we can do things like say, okay, w- really sort of what is the best use of, of my time, mm. right? And, and so that's where you can say w- one conversation, one 30-minute conversation in some of those communities is, you know, extremely helpful in just clarifying, okay, if, if nothing more than here's the person you can call and, and we can talk about this. You know, here's someone who can come to the city council meeting, who can come to the board of commissioners meeting. We, we'd love to do that. And then there's other communities where, where they don't need that, right? There's a thousand people smarter than me who, who could offer that service, right? Um, yeah. and, and so that's where I think that's, you know, one of the balances you have to have, I think, in the, in the public sector is saying, you know, sort of the, the public servant, you know, aspect and saying, okay, you know, I, I am limited in my time. And, you know, and you don't want that mission creep to take you away from what you have to be doing. Yes. But all other things being equal, you can say, okay, you know, this is a call that's really worth setting them on a path for success where we can dig in a little bit deeper, right? You know, I think we do that a lot in data. We, t- we talk about the hazard mitigation plans. We sort of, we, we deliver kind of a, a basement, a floor data mm-hmm. product for all counties. Now, are there counties who then take that and, and, and make it more and more customized? Of course. But we, we make a relatively high, we feel like, floor so that they can go on and look at their, um, you know, issue, issues, concerns yes. with, the, with their group rather than fighting over a data source when we can just sort of do it on the front end, right? I love and, it. and that's one of the beauties to get back to the GIS is, right? One of the, my favorite things is, as I said, 159 counties and we have a, a state plan, so 160. What can we basically do once and use 160 times? I love right? that. And, and that's where we see that efficiency of saying, when you're talking about you know, computational time of 30 seconds versus 33 seconds, it doesn't really matter if you're going to do five more counties at once. Just 
just do it, right? Assuming you're, you're, you're comfortable with the data and then you, you do need to spend some time thinking about that presentation because at the end of the day, it's that community who's using it. Yes. And so if I'm talking about, I don't know, Manning's end, which is a, hu- you know, a hugely important hydraulic variable when you're, when you're modeling floodplains, that doesn't help very much in Jeff Davis County, Georgia, right? To talk about Manning's end, the roughness of stream channels, right? It's yes. irrelevant. Tell me how high, how fast, how frequent the water's going to be. And quite frankly, they can tell me how it's been in the past, right? And then we've already talked about, okay, so that's sort of a historic record. However, what we're showing now, if we were to have these increased uh, rainfall projections that, that we might expect, we could see that not only once every 40 years, we can see it more frequently, right? And then that's when you can get into these, these really tough conversations on recurrence intervals and annual chances, right? And saying, is it, you know, we've all moved away from a hundred year flood, 1% annual chance. Well, now we say at least 26% chance during a 30 year mortgage and we keep fighting with these statistics. And so I think, you know, in, in that front, it's always good for, for me. It's just, sometimes you just got to sort of get out in the stick yeah. and, and just deal with people. And then, and then you have that, that light bulb moment when you say, oh yeah, this is going to be my analogy for the next six months until somebody else gives me one better. Right. Yeah. Our business is so much plagiarism in my eyes. You just, a really good idea either from somebody else or from one community yeah. and you say hey that, that's what i need everywhere else that's uh that's patrick mcginn's pitch patrick mcginn's been on the show a couple times he's one of my best friends we're on the national team together he's uh salvation army and he says exactly that if you're coming up with everything new on the fly you're probably not very good emergency manager it's all about sharing everybody's information and pulling in you're almost building your own template by like Oh my gosh, they're doing that. I love that piece. And you, you do that with training, you do that with all the other pieces. And then, you know, um, you know, Patrick has like a back door into Doberman, I think, uh, servers or something. He's on pulling out my stuff. That's okay though. <laughs> but uh, yeah, but seriously, it's like, it, I mean, getting out to the sticks and talking to people, that 30 minute conversation can save 30 lives. It really can. And um, just by saying like, Hey, like this is worth it for your time. I, I love that. I love a message messaging as part of, um, a mitigation, just be able to get people out of the way. Swift water rescue. Perfect example. You can hundred percent mitigate that by just getting people on board of like what it is, you know? And, uh, I love how you said like, you know, you, you failed if, you, if you're doing swift water rescue from a mitigation point, truly a mitigation point, and also from a messaging point. Um, and so like, I like the, that duality there, um, quite a bit in terms of, um, like the next step from mitigation in terms of like, you know, what people should be, should be focusing on. I always have this problem with, um, like she just turned every, everywhere into a giant park, right? Like that's not going to happen. So like, um, just for like a listener's sake there, we keep on bringing up GIS. We bring up like hazard mitigation. We, Really what we're talking about, honestly, is a hazard vulnerability assessment. And I'm going to do a trade secret here for a second. Um, Doberman does, when we do a hazard vulnerability assessment, we don't like to do anything cookie cutter. It's kind of like my big sticking point. We kind of stay specialized for a reason because I like data. But what we do look at in terms of the the overall overall perspective is we look at 36 man-made and natural disasters. And we run through every scenario. protect life, property, and continuity of operations. And uh, we start to weight that. And then by the end of this hazard vulnerability assessment, hate to say it, most of the time it's better than a hazard mitigation plan. Because I, I can look at my map book and I can look at my my chart here, my, my quad chart, and be like, okay, 
your high frequency, high risk areas, here's where they all are. And, you know, you talk to a community and, you know, we, we provide that to be honest, complimentary for each of our clients because we just want them to know. And more often than not, it comes back of like, how did you know that? Like the data's there. Like it's, it's, it's like, or uh, one time it was like, um, this is actually when I was with the National Cancer Institute. Um, I did that. It took me forever to do it because I was still learning how to do it. It was like, you know, how many years ago? And um, I said, hey, if we have a, I talked with everybody I could po possibly talk to. I, I talked to the building engineers. I talked to uh, the plumbers. I talked to everybody because we had to deal with uh, ice and snow in D.C. And a reoccurring theme came up with was um, the if the brick expanded from ice on one side of the building that is where all the electrical is and so um you're you'll lose electrical to a hospital that does a bunch of research and that's where all the um uh like millions and millions that we're talking probably a hundred to two hundred million dollars worth of research actually probably more um that's probably way undercutting it i'm probably probably close to a billion dollars worth of research and 40 years of research on the national level and so uh, I took that. I said, okay, high probability because of a, a winter storm expanding that and high, you know, a high impact. And so I created an MOU, a memorandum of understanding. Sorry, I'm talking a lot here, but I think it's important for everybody else here. A memorandum of understanding in the tri-state or tri in the region area, because DC is not a state, uh, obviously, of every single dry ice um, that that was available to come in through trucks and put them in the mi minus 80 freezers, right? It's like all it required was one MOU and like so a, a document. If something happened, they would all come in. Well, two months later, guess what happened? Uh, the A huge ice storm came through and then it melted super fast, expand, broke, and the entire wall came down. The hospital lost power. And two hours later, we had our minus 80 freezers. The, the worst one we saw, I think, got down to minus 60. Um, which was phenomenal because by the we had dry ice everywhere, and it was just like, how did you guys do that? Like, how do you how were you so fast in mitigating this? Is like because we had one piece of you know, a single page document that says something happens, they'll all come in. It was expensive, yeah, but like it was less expensive than a billion dollars or whatever, right? Of research. So there's lots of stuff you can do with that too, right? From a private sector um, standpoint. We've had you on here for a while and you've covered a lot of different uh, areas. And so I just want to thank you again for so much for coming on. However, I, I have one last very important question because you've been around the block a few times, right? You've seen a myriad of different disasters. So I got to ask, right? Like I ask everybody, and I'm sure your perspective is going to be different. And I love that. If you're going to talk to the future emergency manager, oh, this is great. This is, I'm finally talking to the mitigation guy who could talk about the future. <laughs> But uh, if you're if you're gonna talk to uh, some guy in ten years, and you're gonna be like, I wish this would have changed an emergency management. If you're gonna change one thing in emergency management to be able to do emergency management better in the future, what would it be? Wow. Um, so I think the biggest issue we sort of have is something we mentioned earlier that there's not enough demand for mitigation, right? If people only knew there would be, you know, so much more demand for the, for the service of mitigation, right? And so the most obvious mechanism for me that would really do that, and this is 
sort of taking the the insurance premium discussion to the next level is that I really think municipal bond rating needs to take into account forward-looking climate risk Mm. because that's when you take the conversation. You know, like I said, I'm I'm happy to work with stormwater engineers, stormwater engineer by education. No, I I can do that. I love that. You know, planning and and zoning development directors, you Mm. know, yeah, land use, building codes, you know, we're getting it. Emergency managers, of course, just sort of the, the, the fraternity and, and of, of that community is just so fun to work with, right? It, but then when you say, but I really want to talk to your bosses, sort of the chief financial officer of the community right. to say that, hey, your municipal bonds are no longer going to be rated the way they used to be because you have this unique combination of hazard, assets exposed, and vulnerabilities. And so we think you're less likely to be, basically you're less likely to pay back what you borrow, right? That's what municipal bonds are, right? Yeah. And so if that rating really, and not just sort of um, greenwashing as people might say, or, or, or qualitatively talking about it from, from uh, environmental sustainability and governance standpoint, but if you really had municipal finances kind of as a function of this data that we've been talking about to say that, Basically, y'all are going to be punished from a from a bond rating perspective if you don't mitigate. Then you're going to start to see folks move, right? Mm-hmm. Or on the other hand, you you could make it sort of the glass half full argument and say when you make this investment, now you're going to make yourself likewise more able to be invested in from a municipal standpoint, right? And, and I know that's kind of a, a market driven approach, right? Especially for someone you know coming out of the public sector and, and proud public servant, and 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 that is the case, but. I touched a little bit about my time in, in Central America right out of college. And so the, mm. the reason I'm so kind of uh, drawn to this kind of some of these market mechanisms of the, of the lever is that I mostly worked in, in community water systems. So these were communities that had been with hand dug wells mm. traditionally or used a river, but didn't have pump water. Right. So that's what that's what we we're doing. You know, digging, you know, mechanized wells putting up storage tanks, often with solar panels, really cool technology from that standpoint, and then and delivering them to communities. And then we had this capacity building about basically operations and maintenance of, of water systems. Mm. And we probably could have done that just in our little northwest corner of Nicaragua for 100 years, right? Because yeah. there's just so many communities that were not served. However, everyone had a cell phone. <laughs> why did everybody have a cell phone? Because basically Spanish telecommunications companies mm. were able to put up a tower, provide a service, charge people for it. And they met that need. Right. And so that was, you know, just this very, very um, obvious lesson in my brain between, you know, we, we can be public servants and, or, or in that case, you know, the nonprofit sector and really reach out and we really can serve people and we can meet needs. But there's some efficiencies of the private sector that, man, they just are just lights out uh, or lights on, typically, (laughs) right? Yeah, Um, literally. Yeah, good pun. Yeah. And and so when we take that up to this point, this municipal finance, you know, I again, you're gonna you're gonna reach the whole world with podcasts. I'm not, and so I, you know, I can't meet every community in, in Georgia, let alone in the U.S. But anybody who's trying to borrow money through their municipal bonds, yeah, they would they would catch on pretty quick if you're saying that tried and true, we're really going to uh, either reward you or punish you based on your, your mitigation, uh, adaptation, uh, investment, really, as it, as it pertains to climate risk in your community. Climate risk adaptation is uh, fascinating to think about because we can only, 
we're trying to model like the max extent of that and i don't think we have any idea like the best models that i've seen um they're on completely opposite ends of the spectrum but we know things are changing and that that should be news enough the fact that we have more name storms now than we did 30 years ago is a big deal you know and it's not a political thing people think it's political really fast i'm like i don't you know politics does the hurricane that's coming out to your house doesn't care what political party you are right like the tornado that's going to get that's going to blast your community that f5 that went through joplin and whatever right downtown town doesn't care at all and um you know like that's that's what we're talking about and i, I think that's a highly intelligent that you talk about it from the local level but i i'm a big fan of local level I'm also a big fan of privatization. Like, there's this thought process right now of like, oh, if we now that emergency management is becoming more, I wouldn't say respected, but we're trying to, we're now like really starting to figure out what emergency management should be. And the world got a rude awakening with the pandemic because it was handed over mostly to uh, public uh, public health, and public health is not the best mechanism to do response. Best mechanism to look at long-term trends, sure, but in terms of managing resources, that's an emergency manager. And so, like, um, now my ten-page dissertation that I give to people of what emergency management is has gotten a lot shorter, but um, it's starting to change. Of like, oh, the private sector is much more efficient than this. Um, we, we talk about what's ha- what's happened in Africa. You brought up cell phones, right? They don't need to build power lines. They can go straight to you know cell towers, right? Jack, thanks again for coming on the show. There's no such thing as right and wrong people, by the way, and I'm not. I'm pretty sure state employees not uh, not endorsing a, an internet provider. But um, seriously, Jack, thank you so much for coming on the show for talking to me. Everything you're saying is is dead on, right? You can mitigate risk through all these different ways to doing it. There's a hundred different groups involved in that. They're not the traditional emergency management groups. You need to learn who the, they are. You got to get buy-in from your local officials. Number one, changing building codes, uh, messaging, getting people—you know—Swiftwater Rescue, everything that you brought up in the show. So, thanks again, big thanks for coming on the show and for documenting me today. John, I appreciate the invitation, and and thanks for being brave on my last name. I appreciate it. We, <laughs> you know, one or two practice runs ahead of time, and, and then you uh, you nailed it. Come live. So I don't I know what you're it. talking about, Jack Kurkowski. <laughs> oh man, I already messed it up. Hold up, hold up, hold up. I don't know what you're talking about, Jack Krolikowski. Oh, uh, that's uh, that's so unprofessional. That is the worst. I was just talking to somebody about how professional we are. That's sad. Um, all right. Seriously, though, thanks for coming on the show. If you're interested in mitigation or if you're um, you're looking at mitigation, you, you heard some things today and you're like, oh, that's actually really smart. Jack said a ton of things that you should be applying anyways. So, so you should be applying it. Um, so if you like the show, you got something out of it, you got to give us that five-star rating and subscribe. Hopefully we edit all the stupid stuff out. So it was a perfect show. Jack, thanks again for coming on. We really like having experts come on here. The best way to do that, if you got something out of it, we do get the emails a lot, the info at DobermanEMG.com. And we appreciate the people who send us emails with questions. But what we really want to see is on our main page, Instagram, Disaster Tough Podcast, Follow us uh, there. Add your question. Add your comment of why you like the show. We would love for other people to be able to see that. And we want the experts to come back on. We got to bring Jack back on and talk in the future about insurance, man. That was a whole other topic that I'd love to be able to talk to him about in mitigation. So help us do that by subscribing there. And then we'll see you next week. Thanks.